Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of our podcast mini-series Getting to Better Together, which is sponsored by the Centre for International Development, Social Entrepreneurship and Leadership at the University of the Sunshine Coast and supported by Noosa Radio FM 101.3. I'm your host, Richard Borden. Before proceeding any further, I wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Gubby Gubby people, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. As regular listeners to this podcast series will know, I place considerable importance on this acknowledgement of country and for the custodianship of the land by countless generations of Aboriginal peoples. In paying my respect to the elders, I'm also acknowledging the significance of their roles in sustaining beliefs and values that to this day remain central to Aboriginal cultures. It's thus a statement that gives me cause to reflect on the beliefs and assumptions that seemingly characterise what we might refer to as the modern-day Australian culture and how these relate to my own personal beliefs and values that are of crucial significance to the way I try to live my life. In essence, what we do in and to the world about us is overwhelmingly influenced by what we can refer to as the way we view that world, or, to put it another way, our world views. All too frequently, we each discover that not only everybody has the same view of the world, We find out pretty early in life as it happens that profound differences can occur between us in the particular worldview beliefs and assumptions that we hold and that can and often do result in conflictual situations. We need to know more about worldviews. We need to know what influences them, how we live our lives and how do we access, how do we surface our beliefs and our values. I'm delighted to to welcome today Associate Professor Melanie Williams, who has given considerable thought and done considerable research into the issues of surfacing beliefs and values and what it means to the way we live our lives. Melanie is Associate Dean Scholarship at William Anglis Institute in Melbourne, where her primary role is to lead and support vocational and higher education teachers to improve their learning and teaching practices. Welcome, Melanie. Thank you, Richard. Let me start by asking you what it is that a worldview actually consists of. Is it just simply a, an attitude, is it an opinion, or is it more than that? Well, a worldview is really a system of beliefs. There are sort of higher order and lower order beliefs that together make up the way that we see the world. So the key components of a worldview are those beliefs that are related to questions about the nature of being and reality, Mm -hmm. um, questions about knowledge and knowing, how do we know what we know, and questions about value. And that can be in terms of aesthetic value, what do we consider as beautiful or not beautiful, moral and ethical questions as well about what's right or wrong, good or bad. So those are the foundational beliefs that make up this this whole networked system of beliefs. And there are other beliefs that hang off of those. Are these essentially subconscious, unconscious? Do we just go through life really never questioning them, just doing what it is that we do? Or are there moments when we think, oh, goodness, what I believe is quite different to what you believe? Yeah, that's a great question. It happens in both of those realms. They're both conscious and unconscious. So our conscious beliefs are, of course, the ones that we can say, you know, put hand on our heart and say, this is where I stand, this is what I believe in. But our worldview beliefs operate at a subconscious level as well. And that's more in the form of assumptions that we don't necessarily realise that we're making as we go about our interaction in the world. What would cause us to question those? Well, typically it happens when we encounter beliefs that are 
contrary to our own and especially when they're ones that we can see there's some sort of validity to them and yet mm-hmm. they don't accord with to what we believe. So that's the trigger point often that causes us to re-examine what our beliefs are. Yes, I was thinking about that in relation to the acknowledgement of country and the worldview that that, that represents to acknowledge the country and to pay respects to elders and so on is a worldview that stands in direct contrast to that which uh, prevailed in this land almost from the moment that the British claimed sovereignty, didn't it? Absolutely, yes, perfect example. I can remember first reading about Terra Nullius, which was proclaimed indeed, wasn't it, by the colony of New South Wales way back in 1835. And that position, that worldview, was that the land belonged to no one prior to the Crown taking possession of it. It wasn't the fact that there weren't people here, that was recognised, but was justified to the fact that they didn't seem to own it. And as a consequence, the British claimed that they could. There's a huge worldview difference, isn't there? It is. And it revolves around one of the the central questions of of worldviews about one of definition. What do you define as ownership? Right. You know, ownership of land is is a very Western concept. It's not something that pertains in the in indigenous worldviews, not only Australian Aboriginals, but other indigenous cultures as well. Very typically see themselves as, you know, as the earth is as a mother, that they belong to it. They don't they don't own it. It seems to me, actually, that other venues, other ways of, uh, of challenging our, our worldviews are constantly presented to us, even if we don't recognise it. In other words, in the media every day, there are opportunities for us to explore our own beliefs and value assumptions, not just from the op-ed sections of the paper, but current affairs. So whether it's war in Ukraine, whether it's COVID and people talking about mandates and whether governments should have them or should not have them, whether we have climate change and people denying not just climate change or the anthropogenic effects, the impact of people on climate, but science itself. At the same time, somewhat ironically, an iPhone in their hand, which is a marvellous manifestation of physics. And so there are, aren't there, there are moments in our lives where we're constantly reminded that we do have differences of opinion and difference of worldview, difference of belief, difference of assumptions, even if that doesn't lead us to question them. Yes, that's right. And it's the questioning of them that is what leads to a transformation in the way that we think. So if we're just looking and acknowledging that there are different points of view, then that's something, a multiplicity, if you like, that there can be valid alternative points of view. But if it doesn't make us then examine our own beliefs in light of those discrepancies, then we're not really talking about that act of transformation. Right. The, the notion of transformation itself is a fascinating one. It's often used these days, everything's going to be transformed by this or by that in all sorts of different contexts. But worldview transformation has a very specific meaning, doesn't it? Yes, it does. So again, we're looking at, I said before that worldviews made up of those sort of three sets of foundational beliefs about being and reality, about knowledge and knowing and about valuing. I would argue that those beliefs about knowledge and knowing, our epistemological beliefs, are the most important ones because it's those beliefs that we use to ascribe meaning and significance to our experience of the world. They do other things too, which we might might come to later, but that attributing of value is incredibly important. It's that power to define. That's what those epistemological beliefs are doing. They are defining 
the way that we see the world and the meaning that we make out of that experience and also they shape our behavior um, in response to our experience as well. So transformation happens in that epistemological sphere of our beliefs, Mm -hmm. that it's about coming, transformation is a process of coming to more complex uh, way of thinking about the world. Would it be fair to say that it's not just knowing more, but knowing differently? Absolutely. Yes, indeed. Knowing more is just about accumulating more knowledge that sits within our current meaning-making structures. But it's when those meaning-making structures themselves change, that's when we're talking about transformation. Because the way that we make meaning shapes everything else that we do and, and see and say. Is it accompanied usually by a sort of aha moment or does it just creep up? Oh, look, there are conflicting theories about this and probably um, different experiences. So some people experience it and some theorists certainly um, talk about it in terms of a change of gestalt, an an aha moment uh, when suddenly you just see things in a different way and it changes everything. That could happen. But sometimes, and other theorists talk about the accumulation of pressure over time, where there might be incremental changes, pressure towards a certain way that eventually tips one over into a new way of seeing. So either or both. So in in the language of the day, a word like sustainability uh, is a worldview, right? Totally. It's, It's a different worldview to that which privileges, say, production above everything else or wealth accumulation above everything else. That sustainability has a deeper meaning. Hmm? Yes. And it has to do with moral principles, to do with what we should do with the land, and the emphasis on should rather than could or ought to do with the land, as the land itself, as well as for future generations yet unborn. And when I say land, I mean nature writ large. So it's not just the land itself and whether we degrade it as an environment but also in terms of all the other species that live that have, according to a worldview, a right to exist. Yes, and that's that's a perfect example of how a worldview is a system of beliefs that interact together in, in complex ways. So, so sustainability as a worldview is not only about knowledge and knowing, scientific knowledge, you know, what happens if you do certain things to the earth. It's not just about that. It's got a value tone to it. So as you say, questions of, of should and ought come into the way of knowing. And that is also intimately bound up with how you see reality. Again, whether you see earth as your mother or earth as a resource to be exploited. These, these beliefs all interact to create your, your meaning-making structures, if you like, that shape the way you see the world and shape the way that you respond to it because of the meaning that they make, the significance that they're attributing. Do we get better at this as we get older? Do we deal with complexity with greater ease or do we shy away from it? It's a very interesting question. There is some degree of sort of natural development that happens where human beings as a process of of growth just do move somewhat along that scale of complexity. But by and large, education is a huge factor in in moving people along that scale too. Yeah. 
Just looking at that, again, there are different theories about this, but in terms of the cognitive development theories, so that is the understanding of the human growth, if you like, cognitive terms, typically, say we're, we're starting with, with at, at adolescence, typically young adolescents will see the world in very black or white terms. There is an external authority, you know, it might be well, early on, it's parents who are the ultimate authority, but it might be the teachers or it might be textbooks. You know, it's an external reference point, if you like, around around how you know what you know and who says what counts as knowledge. And then, and then as adolescents move on through part of that developmental trajectory, they typically come to a very relativist kind of subjectivist view of the world where they see that, oh my gosh, you know, there are all sorts of different conflicting opinions here. So there's no external source of authority. Therefore, everyone's entitled to opinion and they're all the same. Right. Again, it's, that's, it's slightly more sophisticated than, or more complex, if you like, than just seeing things in either black or white terms. But, you know, to, to move people on from that uh, often takes some education where it's getting to a point where you're saying, well, yes, there are multiple points of view, but they don't all necessarily have equal value. And what do we mean by value? How do you discern that one opinion may have more merit than another? Well, you look at questions of how do you justify that opinion? What arguments can you bring? What evidence can you bring to justify one opinion over another? So that's moving through. And, and then, you know, at the, at the very sort of top end of, of the scale, if you like, for those who see it as, as, an, as the, the scale has an, an endpoint, um, it's about, yes, having your opinion. It's, well, it's your, your position on things, supporting that with argument and evidence, but remaining open to the fact that it could be wrong. There could be evidence that comes tomorrow that refutes everything that you thought you believed and remaining open to say, well, okay, it may need to be re-examined in light of new evidence to come forward. So clearly that level of thinking is a great deal more complex than a simple black or white kind of position. So, and, and typically, you know, getting right to that top end of the scale tends not to happen without educational intervention, at least not in, in our Western society. Mm, mm. You made a really important point there relative to, to science, and we've, we've explored that in, in earlier episodes. The notion that science is just simply seeking explanation, and the explanation that one comes up with isn't, as you just suggested, the objective truth. It's just open now to further interpretation, further evidence that may help us change your mind. And I'm thinking of poor old Dr. Fauci in the United States, where the Republican Party are really ganging up on the guy because he changed his mind. Well, as all you've been saying, changing your mind is an advancement. It's development, right? The ability to be able to change your mind means, A, you're not stuck into a particular worldview, which you never question, and B, the obverse, that you're not only able to, but willing to, when new evidence presents itself or new thoughts arrive. Yes, absolutely. And again, this is a part of our Western worldview about, you know, some crazy values around being a strong leader, for example, which mm, we mm. tend to equate with being very rigid in your views. And mm, that's not mm. a very sophisticated way to interact with the world. No, I, I could remember a, a management theorist uh, once arguing there have only been three leaders in, in, the, in the world in recent history, Stalin, Hitler and Mao. And it sort of fits with the image of saying, 
gosh, the moment you mention those names, curls on the back of your neck rise up. And yet they're exactly the manifestations, as you've just suggested, that people seek in leadership. It's bizarre, isn't it? In fact, leadership is a very good example of worldviews, isn't it? Indeed, yes. Even the idea of followership, <laughs> following ship. <laughs> One of the things that, that strikes me, and, and you and I have had this conversation um, earlier, about the suffix ism, that ism flags something to do with worldviews, that there's a sort of ism means a particular set of beliefs, whether it's feminism or racism or capitalism, environmentalism, and so on. Is that fair? A fair statement? Yes, and it's probably glad you've brought that up because it really comes back to different ways in which the term worldview can be used. So in some instances, worldview can refer to a set of sort of collectively held beliefs that multiple, often millions of people might subscribe to. So that's one sense of it. It's a cultural ethnic kind of mix of systems of belief that are sort of recognisable to insiders and outsiders, if you like. Which reflects what we said earlier about Aboriginal cultures and yes. Western cultures. Yeah, right. Exactly, yes. On the other hand, and what I'm sort of talking about is more about an individual's worldview. Um, uh-huh. Now, individuals do sit within collective culture so that the any beliefs that they have are necessarily mediated by that culture of which they are a part Mm. nonetheless we're talking what what i've been talking about up until now is is actually referring to those unique sets of beliefs that individuals hold that will be certainly influenced by their culture but within that there are variations and sometimes there'll be beliefs that come outside of that culture that an Mm. individual will adopt Mm. but that's an idiosyncratic system of personal beliefs and it must work the other way also, rarely, where individuals can actually influence the worldview of a culture. Indeed, yes. And that's how your isms come about, um, mm-hmm. that an individual or group of, of individuals who, who can make compelling arguments in some instances, who may have perceived coherent response to a set of circumstances that people you know, follow behind, and those isms become kind of fixed as a recognisable set and system of beliefs. I was just thinking about, as we were talking then, about the sheer number of isms that are in our everyday conversations, again, without people necessarily using that to surface what it is that they hold to. And I find that interesting. You know, wouldn't it be a good thing if every time we said the word that ended in ism, we actually said, I wonder what that means and why do I believe that? Your research um, took you into a field whereby you were looking at transformation of worldviews through a particular methodology, which wasn't necessarily designed to surface assumptions, but in fact turned out to do so. That's right. So this was all done through a scenario planning exercise. Now, scenario planning is a method of long-term futures studies, if you like. It's used in business, in government, community, to think about and plan for the future. So it's, so it's uh-huh. sort of developing sets of alternative narratives about possible future worlds, if you like. And then you then use those okay. alternative scenarios to inform your strategy, your action plans in the present. So if you've got, say, uh-huh. four potential alternative scenarios, you would look at scenario A and say, well, if this is the world that looks like it's going to be coming about, then what should we be doing now to prepare for that? Or scenario B, okay. different in, in key aspects. 
if that's the one that looks like it's coming into being, what should we be doing now to plan for that and so on. And so by entertaining those different scenarios, what it does is unsettle the unconscious assumptions that we all make about the future. We tend to think that the future is going to be much the same, you know, in, on a, in a linear sort of projection of the present, that it's going to change in much the same ways that it's changed in the past and probably at much the same rate and so on. So when you look at, at these alternative scenarios, which need to be constructed very carefully so that they are worlds in which different sets of assumptions will have to operate, then that can really provide some perspective on your habitual ways of thinking and assumptions that you have. So it's a very a very useful method for bringing about that worldview transformation that we've been talking about. Yet when you read the literature on scenario planning, the notion of worldview transformation rarely appears. So it would seem that there are two levels, put it crudely. There's the notion of just creating scenarios of the future to explore somewhat mechanistically or instrumentally in a linear way. This might be versus the idea of this might be if there were changes in ideas. I mean, I often think about the Chicago School and the birth of neoliberal economics uh, as a political economic, which happened for a handful of people that just simply said, well, what if we saw the world as an economist differently to the way economists traditionally have seen the world. So this represented for me a major change. Now in terms of your own research, what triggered people beyond simply exploring the future? What encouraged them to start thinking about their own personal worldviews as it was reflected in the worldviews that they were exploring, in the scenarios they were exploring? Well, as the facilitators of the process, we were careful to encourage that kind of examination of assumptions all the way through. So as there are a lot of activities that you sort of step your participants through in a scenario building process, and at each step along the way, uh, as facilitators, we would ask them now, how are the different worldviews impacting of, of, you know, the participants in the group, how are they impacting on the outcomes that you're producing at this point? And we would ask things like, what might unintended consequences be here? Who might be benefiting from perhaps particular actions, strategies that were being developed? Who might benefit and, and who might be disadvantaged? And whose voices are being privileged here? And whose voices are being silenced? So some very active facilitation around prompting people to keep thinking all the way through just how much the way that the particular way that they see the world is is shaping these outcomes that, that we were producing. And the, um, the scenarios are, are the product of the collective worldviews of those who are building them. Sounds like a potentially stressful process, is it? It can be. It can also be incredibly exhilarating. Now, let me give you an example of what happened in that research that we we're talking about. This was working with a group of teachers and principals from kindergarten through to year 12, looking at the future of teaching uh, over over a 30-year period, there was a point at which where people had been working in small groups on developing their scenarios, and there was a point at which we needed to sort of merge some of them because they were similar enough 
that, well, they weren't going to produce enough differentiation to give really diverse strategies. So we, we had some of those groups okay. merging and melding. And it came to a point where one group had been working on a particularly utopic sort of scenario in, in many respects, merging with one that was sort of slightly darker. And there were two women in particular who became very upset about this was their they didn't want to live in a world that was darker than the one that they were developing and (laughs) and but the response to that moment of crisis was something that was incredibly fascinating so one of those women just didn't get over her upset about that point and so she in her later evaluation she said you know you lost me at that point I just withdrew I stopped investing and from there on I I didn't enjoy the process anywhere near as much the other woman who was equally upset at the time took that opportunity to really examine her view of the world. It was one of those things that Mesero, the sort of father of transformative learning theory, calls a disorienting dilemma. She was just as discombobulated as the other woman, but she saw in it an opportunity for growth. And she just didn't look back. And she'd had a particularly black or white kind of view of the world. And she just took off. And so I interviewed her, I interviewed all my, all my people uh, th- three times over a period of two to four years. Now, by the end of those four years, she had left her classroom teaching. She was working, developing a statewide curriculum, completely out of her little cave in her teaching and with a mind that had just exploded. So, yes, it can be stressful. It can be incredibly exhilarating as well. So seeing that opportunity to just Mm. let fly, there were others in the group who, for whom that was a turning point for their practice principles in particular as well, who then took their schools to very, very different places from how they had been seeing their role as a leader in, in their school and in their community. That's fascinating. Well, we should all be applauding the idea of mind explosions. And Melanie, thank you so much. This is really a complex issue and you've helped illuminate it really, really well indeed. And I look forward to the opportunity to be able to discuss some of these issues further with you at some date into the future. Thanks so much. I would love that, Richard. Thank you very much. And thank you all who have been listening. And I look forward to the next time we meet. Until then, this is goodbye from Richard and from Sidson. Goodbye. Goodbye.